0: Uh, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Ravi Gupta. You're a couple of different things, but I think I was told to call you for this the CEO and co-founder of Lost Debate. Is Correct. that the official title you want to go with here? Yeah,
1: sure. Yeah. All right, so
0: Ravi and I have known each other for a while um, in politics, but it's the first time that, that you've come on the podcast. So I'm, I think I'm so, excited. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, we've we've spent time kind of strategizing about different things. Our politics are, I think, more aligned than people would probably for predict. Sure. Yeah, you know? I think
1: I got tagged as like an extreme leftist because I helped a lot of Flawed candidates win a couple of years ago. And we shouldn't talk about that because my track record past couple of years in New York City politics isn't great. Yeah, so. well, we'll, we'll definitely get <laughs> into that.
0: Um, so, but first, define for uh, probably about half of our listeners are people in the political world, so they know Lost Debate, but I'm guessing some of our people in VC. So, sure. don't yeah. define it for the audience.
1: So, it's a nonprofit media company I founded about a year and a half ago, funded mostly by Reed Hastings from Netflix. And our mission is to uh, create a space for people to come together from different political ideologies in good faith to discuss and debate like the most important issues of the day. And we really want to solve, and this is so cliche to say at this point, but we want to solve misinformation and polarization online and basically go to like the corners of the internet where sort of political arsonists thrive and try to create a more nuanced discussion.
0: And is it, it, it are you doing that by sort of proactively targeting certain things or is it just We're going to, instead of the crazy polarization, we're going to have a thoughtful, nuanced discussion, and that will hopefully attract people.
1: A little bit of both. So we have a whole side of our team that does social on TikTok and Instagram and, in certain cases, meta. They're a little bit more on the targeting side of things. For our podcasts, it's more like trying to just attract people who are looking for that kind of nuanced dialogue and that's the stuff that I find more fulfilling
0: did you guys do a lot of research into your audience
1: yeah so so what do you
0: know because what you're talking about sort of defies the trend that we've seen in media over the last 10 years right? so given that um, who is the audience and what made you think that you know Fox News and New York Times have become so successful at only sort of preaching to the agreed yes. that you guys could do the opposite and succeed.
1: Well, I would say that we haven't declared victory on anything yet. We're a nonprofit and we're really good at not making a profit. So <laughs> I'd say like we're, we haven't cracked any code yet, but we have really good funders and a good team that's very patient. Like part of part of the conversation I had in the beginning when we started it was that there weren't going to be easy wins. And I think it might have been Jonah Goldberg or somebody who said that nuance doesn't sell, and they're right. Like the easiest thing in the world, and we even know this from our shows. When we have a show where we pick an incendiary topic, and we're never we try we never, are, like, disingenuous about anything. But sometimes we'll just pick hot topics. Like we'll talk about Chappelle a year ago when he was doing his Netflix special. Those are always the highest performing episodes. Whereas like today we just recorded an episode on. Um, what are PVMs again? Like, there's like this intermediary, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah in the healthcare system. Patient beneficiary, yeah, yeah, something, something like that. It. It, 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 it's it's for the some really important department. Department. Yeah, it's effectively yeah, yeah. sort
0: of the mechanism that you actually get your prescription drugs paid for by insurance.
1: Yeah, so. Um, yeah. And we do stuff like that where it's really important. It's really nuanced. We've built an audience that really loves this kind of stuff. But obviously that's not going to do as well as, hey, what did Chris Rock say on his live special this weekend? And so we're still figuring out, like, how do you build this big audience for the nuance? Because it really hasn't been done by too many people.
0: Is the the theory that... You kind of give them some fun stuff like Chris Rock and Chappelle and that builds trust and then you can talk about PBMs and they're more likely to listen and pay attention?
1: Pretty much, yeah. And I think like I'm bad at doing that because I'm often like bullying our producers into just doing three PBM-style stories, whereas our producers <laughs> are like, hey, no, let's talk about Chris Rock or whatever. And, and my co-host, Ricky, has got a really good eye for that kind of stuff because my I come from Democratic politics. My co-host on our flagship show is a Gen Z conservative libertarian who writes for the New York Post and appears on Fox News. And so we get together twice a week and we come from very different perspectives in life, in politics, the journalistic circles we do. Because like when I'm outside of Lost Debate, I do a show on the Midas Network, which is about as left as it gets. And I partner with people like Crooked Media on content and come from democratic politics, where she comes from the complete opposite. So it creates, you know, as she has a good attitude about it, obviously, you can find some conservatives who are totally nihilistic and aren't interested in facts. like she's not that. Like she's very much like like interested in having a dialogue and changing her mind.
0: So let's get into your background a little bit because I think it'll help establish sort of credibility for the conversation to come. So um, you start off in democratic politics, uh, start off in the Obama administration. How do you even get into the White House that whole? Yeah,
1: it's such a fluke. I was in law school. I went to I grew up in Staten Island, New York, middle class family, raised by my mom went to Binghamton University. Shout out to the SUNY system. Really awesome. And I got into Yale Law School, which was like not heard of in Binghamton. I think it had been like 10 plus years since everybody got in. And that's a whole story unto itself. And about a year into law school, I was looking around and we were heading towards the 2008 campaign. It was about 2006. And all the hype was around Obama. turns out one of my classmates uh, helped write Audacity of Hope, And so I just went up to her, like, called, like, went up to her in the cafeteria and was like, hey, I want to go work for Obama. And she was like, she heard from so many people who wanted to do this. I was like, no, really, I'll sweep floors. I don't care. She was like, well, they're only hiring fundraisers right now. This is when they're an exploratory committee. And I was like, yeah, I'll fundraise. I could do that. Because <laughs> I used do- to be a door-to-door kid. I used to sell candy as a kid. All right. so you had there. this. You had the skill set. Yeah. But I assume you didn't know a lot of rich people. Nobody. Right. Yeah, not a single one. And so the richest people I knew were at Yale Law School. Like, when I looked at those kids, like, who went to Princeton, Yale, right. Harvard, I was like, wow, these are, like, the richest people I've ever met in my life. The first Ivy League people i would ever met in my life. And so then I jumped in the Obama campaign. I think I was, like, employee 12 on the exploratory committee. Joined before he announced. And then worked my way up from fundraising to be becoming uh, Axelrod's assistant in the general election. And then I had to go back to law school and I worked out a deal where Susan Rice, when she became the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., allowed me to travel back and forth to New Haven to complete my degree while I worked for right. her. Right, so it's
0: interesting. So my brother-in-law, who I suspect a lot of your uh, people in your world hate, Josh Gottheimer, who's, you know, in, in the I, house. Yeah, I don't have um, I don't hate him personally. But, okay. I know a lot
1: of people talk trash about yeah, him, but, but he, I, did I didn't so, know he was your brother-in-law. that's yeah, yeah, amazing. So
0: he was on the Wesley Clark Camp, when he was, in law, he was a little older than you, so this was like maybe the 04 campaign. He was on what's the carpet that he was on Kerry And he cut a deal with Elena Kagan, who was the Dean of Harvard Law School, and he got lucky that he had such a political person running it. Yeah. To basically let him graduate without him ever actually showing up. Yep. In his third That's year essentially my
1: law school experience. Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 I pioneered, I like to think you. I pioneered remote learning. Uh, <laughs> so back in the day, like the yeah, basically you just have to learn how to pick the right classes. I picked big lecture classes where you're anonymous that had exams at the end of the year, because basically the way law school works is there's no grades throughout the year for the most part, so you just take one exam. And so it started by me just going back for exam period, and then at a certain point they started allowing people to take the exams remotely, and so I just would take the exam. I remember it was during the inauguration period because you used to come back in January to take your exams. I remember taking an exam from a Starbucks the day of the inauguration uh, when Obama won. Did did you
0: already know you weren't gonna practice law?
1: There's a part of me like that always thought I was going to go become a district attorney in Staten Island where I grew up, an assistant district attorney. And, and and argue in the courtroom, and that still may happen one day. That was always my vision, but it's weird because it was not the same vision of anybody who goes to a place like Yale. Right, and, and it's
0: certainly whether you got you know
1: well, this Yale doesn't have grades, right? No, yeah, right. that was the That's best. That's the thing, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter, right? You, you right. could low pass, which I somehow avoided, which is a miracle. But even if you did, it yeah. wouldn't matter. Yeah. yeah, it matters only in the sense that if you wanted to go work for a big law firm, they'd look at that and they'd immediately know you as like a truly exceptionally lazy person because it to get it's a low very pass, hard, at, yeah, at yeah,
0: yeah. No, I went I went to Chicago and it was sort of. Same thing in that because I wasn't gonna practice law and I knew that from day one and I was like I don't really give a shit what my grades are. It was very liberating and what ended up happening is the classes that I found genuinely interesting I had great grades in and the classes that I didn't I was like fuck it and I would just get really low grades for sure didn't make a difference. I've never seen my law school transcript and nor has anyone else. Same, it's it's irrelevant.
1: Same, yeah, and I think what it allowed me to do is because I was such a hustler in undergrad I was like a chemistry major in Binghamton I was like. I had a 4.0, I was a machine, like a total maniac. By the time I got to Yale I was like burnt out. And then I was able to just hang around with a bunch of cool people. There's actually a lot of Kerry campaign refugees, yeah. like people like Adisu DeMessi and Jason Green, and all of these guys, Brian Deese, yeah. like all these guys were in my class. And they're all, they were all super smart, super politically active. And we all just kind of hung out instead of taking our classes too seriously. And that was liberating in its own ways. And then that kind of set me up to then join the Obama campaign. And then we won. And I worked for Susan. I did that for like a year and a half. And then I basically had my Devil Wears Prada moment. I'd been an assistant to a couple of different people. And I basically like metaphorically threw my Blackberry in the fountain and was like, all right, I need to do something else. And are you, are you so close with Susan? Not close, but like when I see her, we talk. Is she's she going to go run Brookings? People is that keep, what we're hearing? That's what I keep hearing. I first met her at Brookings, interestingly. I did a summer at Brookings, and that's that's how we met. But... She was a fundraiser for Obama. That's how we really got close. We were very close when I worked for her. I was her traveling assistant and speechwriter. So I used to carry her purse. I used to write some of her speeches. Well, you have a great line in your bio, right? You're like
0: a slightly substandard version of Gary from Veep, right? There you go. That was
1: it. And I actually think everybody should do a job like that. I think it was so fulfilling and so humbling. And she was tough, man. Like the closest, I'm not a crier because I come from Staten Island and my mom is like a very tough woman. But the closest I've ever come to crying in a professional setting is one time I was in a meeting with her and she just turns, we're like in a meeting of all the principals of like a bunch of different agencies and stuff. And I'm there and she just turns to me. I said something particularly stupid. I can't remember what it was. And she just looked at me and says, what do you even do here? (laughs) And I almost like burst into tears in front of everybody. It was very tough. But so she's one of those people, you've probably had bosses like this, where you really respect them. I did a whole tweet thread about this once when she was in Veep Speculation. I was like, she is not a nice person, but I respect her, and she'd be great because she's a scary, badass motherfucker. She's not the person I seek out if I'm at an event because she truly intimidates me till this day, but she's really good at what she does and has a high degree of integrity. Mike
0: Bloomberg's a little bit like that. I would say Mike, actually, it's funny. He's a very... Decent person because he really has tried to devote a lot of his fortune, a lot of his life to trying to do things like ban smoking or whatever it is. Right, right. Um, but like, I remember once when I was running his campaign in 2009, he and I were going to some meeting somewhere and he's dropped me back off at my apartment in Peter Cooper kind of towards the end of the night. And somehow, like, I'd st- my wife had a baby like a few days earlier and I was just like, he hasn't said anything. I've been with him, you know, and I was like, just so you know, we had a, a, a baby fair. He goes, Oh, yeah, I know. And that was it. went right back to whatever he was doing. Oh, my God. Um, but with that said, the greatest boss I've ever
1: had. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, like, sometimes the coolest bosses I've had, actually, I look back, were not good bosses. The ones like her who were, like, you know, they're like, no, you know, I became a school principal eventually. Like, it, it reminds me of teachers. The teacher who, on day one, all the students love is going to be a disaster by the end of it. You're going to resent them. Their lines aren't clear. Whereas the person who's strict... And it kind of holds the line and is like, hey, like, I was a mess. I was in my mid-20s. I was partying all the time. I was overconfident. Like, I needed somebody like her to be like, you know what? I'm going to be harder on you than anybody's ever been on your life, and you're going to learn how to be a professional. And for that, I'm really grateful. So how do you... So you did something that,
0: like, to me is very unusual, kind of having been around the, the world of DC and politics and all that, which is you had this super high-status job, right? And then you... Switch to do something that most people would consider you know not nearly as sort of prestigious and important, even though arguably more important in real life, which is you start running schools, right? right? How did you reach that conclusion? and and sort of from an ego standpoint, how did you kind of get there? was it a problem? It was the
1: best thing that ever happened to me because I had I'd picked the Obama. We all had this problem on the Obama campaign where we started to conflate our success with his success. yeah, and we all started to think we were better than we were. And thank God I did I, I wound up leaving. And the administration going down south to Nashville to start a school. It was a very lonely experience, so I didn't know anybody in Nashville. The only person I knew was the mayor, Carl Dean, who helped me start the first school. Why'd you pick Nashville? Because I had a fellowship opportunity from this place called Building Excellent Schools, and it's usually a two-year process where they train you to become a school principal. They pick a few people each year, and there's this woman named Sue Walsh. She was kind of like the Mrs. Miyagi of schools. Like She was an old Catholic school principal who knew everything about teaching people to do schools. And she uh, was taking a few people that year, and it's a long story as to how I got even to them in the first place. And then she said to me, look, like, you can do the two-year program and do it in New York. And there was also, like, a looming, as there always is, a cap-like question about whether there was even going to be what a What year was this? This would have been around 2010. Ah, uh, I-, I ran the campaign that to lift, we, the, cap. To lift the cap. We got uh, 125,000 more seats. So I had an opportunity to do a two-year process in New York, which maybe then I would have started a school in Staten Island or something. And then she said, well, there's this mayor in in." in nashville and a a legislature in tennessee that allow you to fast track your school get it off the ground in a year right now mind you i'd never run a school never taught but i was so anxious to get working and i also knew enough about myself in new york to know that i needed to almost live like a monk in order to start a school like i couldn't have friends i couldn't have distractions i couldn't like run around chasing women like i was doing in new york city like i was working for the un which is like for a mid-20s person like i was Coming off of the Obama campaign with a really high status job was kryptonite to any sense of discipline and self awareness. So in many ways I was running away from how that. How did you know to do that? Right? Like yeah. I understand now, how old are you now? Uh, I am thirty-nine. Fuck, so 30, 40. thirty-nine,
0: yeah. I get that you now have the perspective to realize all of this. But you made the decision in real time. I think
1: it, I think I attribute it to my parents. Like I was raised by my mom who's a nurse, but my dad's a doctor and I got to see enough of him to to know a couple of things. I always wanted to be a doctor when I was like really young because my parents are both in medicine. And I think part of me looked around the politics, and I, I always wanted to create for myself something that I saw. And My dad's an incredibly flawed guy, but one thing I always respected about him is that every single day he went to work, he was essential and doing really important work to help people. And I knew at that point it was impractical, impractical to like take a step back and go to medical school. Even though I had like done a lot of stuff in undergrad, I was prepared for it. I was like well, what's the closest thing to like helping people every day? And I also knew enough about myself to know what I was good and bad at and what I was really, really, I, I, what I thought I'd be really good at and turn out to be like the best I'd ever been in any job is things that are like almost tactile and almost like a sport. Like being a school principal, you're on your feet, you're solving problems in real time. It's almost like why I was good at like managing campaigns. I'm much better at that, or was much better at that than i am like sitting at a desk writing that memo like when my summer i spent at brookings Institu- institution was like the worst summer <laughs> of my life cuz i would like write one memo for two months right. it's like the now i am much better at I, that kind I, of work but I, I can't one, do that i had
0: one summer so when I, after my first year of law school i said you know i'm going to try to find for that summer the most exciting job in the law, just to confirm that this is not what I want to do. So there's a division called, I don't even know if it's still around anymore, but it's called the Office of Special Investigations at DOJ and they hunted Nazi war criminals who were still alive and living in the US. Oh my God. And I was like, well, what could be better? They to pay my family, Holocaust survivors, the whole thing. And I thought like they were going to get there, and they're going to give me like a, leather, a leather, leather trench coat and a gun and put me on a plane to Ohio. And instead, of was like write this fucking memo. And right. Two months later, I was like, yeah, like yeah I'm, extradition I'm, or I'm, something. I'm done with the law. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's why I say if I did the law, and if I ever wind up doing it, I would be like in a courtroom because st- that's still the pattern of what makes makes me happy.
0: P- plaintiff's law in a weird way. Yeah. Like a lot entrepreneurial... of friends who did plaintiff's work. Yeah. Yet. That's what I would have done. Right. Um, so all right. So so. You, you know nothing about running schools, and yet you become a school principal. How does it unfold?
1: Well, I go to North Nashville, which had, at the time, had, and I still think, uh, I think it still does, has the highest incarceration rate for black males in the entire country. Correct. It was a decimated area. It's being gentrified like all of Nashville now. But it also had fewer than 1% of kids in their zone public high school attending, uh, getting a college ready ACT. So it was a mess, really. So I started going door to door in that neighborhood. I recruited one guy from the neighborhood. And we would go door to door just recruiting families and the district wouldn't even give me the list of families. so I was just cold-knocking families whether they were of the grade level or not and it was very humbling to go from the yeah. Obama experience where I'm knocking doors and they're like well yeah Obama great to who the hell are you like what you're not black you're not white what's your name where you come from you're gonna start a school you don't have any track record and so that was definitely the hardest thing I ever did and I did that over the course of a few months recruiting families for that how many family how many kids did you get so we were started one grade level at a time. So the first one was around 90 kids. Okay. And we had to fight for all of those kids. And then we open up and we, like, I th- it's one of the proudest, I think it's the thing I'm most proud of in my life is we were so thoughtful about that school. And we wound up, we had a whole series of things that I think made it successful. But in the end... We were the most successful in the his, school, charter school in the history of Nashville. After our first year, we had the highest math results in this entire city of Nashville. We even exceeded the math results of Williamson County, which is the equivalent of our Scarsdale, despite the fact that our kids were uh, nearly 100% free and reduced lunch, all kids of color, uh, you know, kids coming from really difficult neighborhoods, who came in on average two grade levels behind in reading and math, we had, uh, we were rated by our first few years both Tennessee, which has this like value-added growth metric, and Stanford rated us the highest performing charter school network in the state of Tennessee. And in basically every subject, we were just not only beating the district average, but beating every district school, including the ones right. in high performing so, neighborhoods.
0: So arguably, maybe not even argue, just factually, that's the most important thing you could do for a poor kid, right alone. For cool sure, kid, right in my opinion, yeah, and. You're now seen as a sort of high-profile progressive, yeah. and progressives would like to talk about how virtuous they are and how they care about people from other races and everything else, and yet they oppose charter schools. And not all charter schools are successful, and the ones that aren't should be shut down, but like Success Academy here clearly has that same kind of track record that you were just talking about in Nashville. And yet they believe that they're supposed to be against education reform and against charter schools.
1: How in their head, do they know they're full of shit? You know, I I wrote something about this the other day called the the progressive Pleasantville problem, where I essentially talk about how white progressives in particular, because if you look at black and brown uh, Democrats, they support charter schools. Their support hasn't changed. Somewhere around the end of the Obama administration, the beginning of the Trump administration, white progressives cooled to charter schools. They were never really with us, but they became really uh, against charter schools around that period of time. And I think part of it is that they look in the mirror and they don't see themselves as exercising school choice. So they move to the right neighborhood, they lawyer their way into the right magnet school, they send their kids to private schools, and then they don't view any of that as school choice. But if a kid you know, goes to a public charter school or takes ESA dollars or vouchers, they view that as school choice, and it's a very convenient narrative. But what, so I, I get why, and I'll give you my... Teachers union through, which is gonna sound a little
0: crazy in a second. But um, but I, I get why the teachers union and the people on their payroll would construct that narrative. But if you're genuinely someone that you think you're a good person and you're trying to do good things for the world, why why would you choose to
1: Acknowledge that, or allow I th- that. I think it, it's it's these certain elite progressives who are really good at controlling the narrative, like Elizabeth Warren, who you know at one point was pro charter and voucher, even more even extreme than I am on some of these issues, who flipped. Teachers Union pressure, probably involved in Massachusetts. We don't need to go into that. But they spin, and Bernie Sanders is a good example, people who've, who have sent their kids to private schools, uh, you know, weren't even lied about it to a parent who tried to ask her about it, that she sent her son to a private school. They have this double standard where they're like, all right, no matter what I choose to do with my own kids, uh, this system, they start making these system arguments, like, all right, charters take money out of the system, they bankrupt the system, and they equate it there's a couple things going on. One is, if Donald Trump says charter schools are good, there's a lot of progressives who just can't hear anything else. And they're just going to be like, I'm, like if he says the sky is blue, they can't agree with him. And I think that's part of what's going on with charters, because the data really started to shift significantly around yeah. the Trump administration. I think, two is there are genuinely bad faith actors on the right who are trying to defund the public school system for reasons that progressives should be alarmed about. I don't think that's even... like. I don't think that's a significant part of the story because, the, as you know, the, the coalition for public charter schools by and large is, you know, black and brown families, urban progressive professionals. And white and all hedge that. funders. And, yeah, and who, <laughs> yeah. Who pay for the campaign. Yeah, and, like, you're really, really rich billionaires. Uh, yeah. And so, like, that... And there's a huge debate going on in the charter sector that I'm a part of about broadening that that base to now include suburban and rural families. There's a big debate going on in Tennessee about this. Yeah, I mean, I
0: I helped Michelle recreate students first when she was finishing up being chancellor of D.C., and she always made a really interesting argument, which was suburban schools are not nearly as good as parents allow themselves to think they are, right? And the reason it's so important that they have that perception in their mind is they made this sacrifice for in their mind for their kids, right? Yeah. So now they're commuting to whatever city it is, and their life is kind of harder yeah. as a result, but it's worth it because your kids have better schools, and therefore there's this fallacy that these schools are really good when you actually look at the numbers oftentimes. They're not that good.
1: Yeah. Well, you also get to, okay, when you talk about why progressives are not are against this, like East Nashville is a good example mainly it used to be a black neighborhood now is a white progressive neighborhood a lot of people saved up a lot of money to buy the right house in east nashville they feel very threatened by school choice because they 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 really the neighborhood school boundary to them is everything it's why their property value is what it is they worked really hard to get there i'm sympathetic i i just wish they didn't close off the school choice for other people i would weaken those neighborhood school boundaries but yeah. I would. But even if we didn't do that, you should just support charter schools, right? And, and in the case of East Nashville, a lot of those parents oppose both. They oppose weakening the neighborhood school boundaries and they oppose charter schools, which leaves very little options for the people trapped in bad neighborhoods. So, oh yeah, and so you, you talked about like, you know, like what this coalition looks like in the future. I think one of the problems that the the charter school people have had is that they didn't take seriously... Like, they were so captivated, and I was one of these people, by the mission of black and brown families in urban centers that they kind of ignored the rest of the politics. It's yeah. what got us in trouble with Common Core, for example. Now I think they're starting to take it seriously, and I think it's it's there's a problem in the sector where so many people who do the public charter schools in cities aren't equipped to do the suburban charter schools. They're actually very different types of schools. Yes. You know, like, I'm not sure that— that the parents in the urban uh, environments are asking for the same things. Right. I think part of the problem also
0: is that I found uh, when I was doing all the education reform kind of campaigns, you know, about 2000, 10 to 15, that, that range, is you could get people to support a big campaign, right? So like when we increased the cap in New York, I raised $8 bucks, paid pretty much from all hedge fund guys. We took on the UFT and Shelly Silver, and we won. But the thing that I couldn't quite convince them of was like this was just the beginning guys. Yeah, now because the, the UFT nice it or same equivalents in every single state and city in the country, they're there, every fundraiser for every assembly member, yep. every state senator, and they they're you know given a couple of grand each time, but they are consistent and reliable in their political support. And you achieve your goal, and now you go on to do something else. They're so
1: fickle. And then yeah. all
0: of a sudden, all these members feel abandoned and betrayed. And it, since they're making decisions basically based on their next election, yeah. as a result, they true. go back
1: to the teachers' unions. They're fickle. They raise all this money. And then they're also not resilient. Like, they'll lose an election. This happened in Nashville. Yes, totally. And then they'll dismantle the entire infrastructure. So they're they're either... They either lack resiliency when they win or lose. So they're like they're like a bad sports team. They overreact to victories and 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 overreact to losses. Yeah. Whereas they're not like Belichickian in the way that the unions are, where they're just like every day, win or lose, we're going to keep coming back, we're going to keep funding it. But although I do, I was going to ask you about this. I've heard that's changing in New York. Eva and others have kind of built a more long term infrastructure. So,
0: yeah. So, so, Students First in New York, now we're going to fill a level of detail that probably the listeners are about to start killing themselves. But I know. So yeah, students you students cut this out. So, yeah. Students First in New York, because we, we help create that was meant to be this sort of long-term, sustainable political operation. Um, and then Eva was originally part of it. She kind of split off. She does her own thing. I, I think the world of Eva, but yeah. Eva does Eva, right? Yeah. And, like, I think she does more good for kids than almost than anyone I've ever met. But um, she has a clear agenda, which is the stuff that she cares about and believes in. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, There are the... She's like, for listeners who don't know her, oh, she's so kind right. of like the Thank Steve you. Jobs of the charter school world where she's very insular, very excellent, very interesting, <laughs> and runs really great schools. Very tough. Uh, and is, is very stubborn about the way she wants to do things in a way that I respect, but I also probably wouldn't be collaborating with her, and she probably wouldn't want to collaborate yeah. with me either. So I, I haven't seen, apart from her, right, she's excellent at what she does, the
0: rest of the community here in New York, Get back to the levels of support and enthusiasm that there was like a decade ago, yeah. right?
1: We lost the also, sort of Mike
0: not being mayor changes.
1: Yeah, arms, and, so. th- and that was the period of time around the waiting for Superman period of time yeah. around twenty eleven was the apex of the reform movement. Yeah, yeah. I did
0: screening yeah. for Davis Guggenheim to raise money. Like he yeah, come did in, yeah. We do in Nashville too, right. yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: And it was that's when I kind of entered the work, and it was where all the vibes were great, and people were be- going on Oprah. I my buddy was on Oprah, and she gave him a million dollar check for his school and all that kind of stuff. And then the dog days started to happen around fourteen fifteen. Yeah. yeah. Where they were like, they literally tried to like throw me in prison for running schools for low-income kids and, you know, accuse you of privatizing, accuse you of stealing money from kids. You know, I had a Yale Law degree. I'm like, look, I go to a law firm, make five times this amount any day. Like this is a weird, if this were me trying to make money, like this would be a very strange way to go about it. Like leave my family and all my friends to move down to Nashville to work my ass off. Uh, and so the vibes got really bad around then. I think they're turning around. I don't think they'll ever be, again, what they were in 2011, but I think they're getting better slowly again, although it's happening at a time where, if you talk to any educator out there, the the level of burnout in schools and just the climate around trying to run schools right now for a lot of reasons is really bad, whether you're in your charter or not, and then the the labor market is a disaster, like anybody... Like, it's going to flip now. You're starting to see all these layoffs and, and you know, unemployment will, will rise. But it's been really hard to attract good educators. Yeah, right and years. I think
0: also politically, Obama was a great the validator perfect, for charter schools, right? Absolutely perfect. Couldn't design a better one. Then Trump, at least... For progressives and even just Democrats, right, all of a sudden becomes the anti-validator. And then Biden's kind of a, you
1: know, I'm I like Biden, but he's kind of a union hack. Right? Yeah. He and, says he doesn't like charters, he yeah. pushes really bad policy, but he doesn't even have his back in it. Like he tried to push all these like stupid rules against charters and he kind of backed down a little bit. And it's part because it's not a, thank God, not a priority of his. But you're starting to see the rise, and maybe this is a good transition into like the future of the Democratic Party. You're starting to see the rise of The Eric Adams type people who you're starting to see more candidates who, you know, say what you will about Eric, but like people like him, Hakeem Jeffries. Do you know who the
0: sponsors were of my charter cap bill in 2010? Who? Hakeem Jeffries and Eric Adams get the heck out uh, of here. Hakeem was the go. assembly sponsor, and Eric was. It certainly didn't hurt their careers. Yeah,
1: well, you, you know, <laughs> right. I, I replied to Brad Landers, he's the uh, the um controller, the comptroller in New York, because he was spreading all the people need to be heard about charters, and he's he was like anti-charter. And I was way. like, well, yeah, the people were heard. They elected Eric Adams, who is the runner-up, also a charter supporter. They, you know, who's the most powerful Democrat in New York? Hakeem Jeffries. Yep. Uh, and who is the governor? A charter supporter. So yep. the people actually have been heard. They. There's a quiet That's majority a in support of charter schools. And if you look at any polling in New York City, one of the reasons why Eric Adams is married is because there's black and brown families. Are, they're, they're more numerous, but not as much heard in the grass tops or in the, on Twitter or whatever. Right. So, so then
0: on that, why is it that white progressives, when you say to them, people in communities of color overwhelmingly want They don't want to be you know mistreated by the police but they do want a police presence yeah why do they just reject that instinctively
1: I think it's starting to change I think that there was a brief period of time where everybody lost their mind not everybody but enough people lost their minds and were saying things that were patently insane about the police Uh, and as somebody who grew up in Staten Island it really offended me because I grew up amongst a lot of police officers my grandfather was a police officer and I was seeing this weird phenomenon of people coming over from Williamsburg, and sometimes I knew them personally, coming into my neighborhood and breaking the window of a bodega that's owned by a Bangladesh immigrant in the name of social justice. And I'm like, what the hell is that? Like, that doesn't do anything for anybody. And those same people disappeared years later when you try to do any long-term work on criminal justice reform. The same people with the black squares aren't doing jack shit. So I'm like, it's a hollow activism. And I think a lot of, you know, one thing you can count on is white progressives to tie themselves into pretzels. Over their own guilt and anguish. And I think it is one of those cases where it actually helps because they are self-reflective in a certain way. And I think what you're starting to see is the data on Defund the Police is flipping back. And there's really good data. This guy, Todd Rose, if you know the people at Populous. Mm-hmm. So Populous does private public opinion polling. You probably have heard of this work. So basically they 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 have a complicated statistical method to get people to say what they like say what they believe in public, mm-hmm. and then they get them through the statistical method to indicate what they privately believe. And what he found is that what people were saying publicly about defund the police and privately were two different things. And he actually advised Biden on the State of the Union address, to not this past year, but the year before. Remember when Biden said, I want to fund the police? It was Todd's data, apparently... That convinced Biden that he actually had more support for that idea than than some of the public opinion polling suggests. And now even the public opinion polling so, is starting to show that people so have do come around you, do to this you idea. Think, cause like it's I always find it crazy that
0: like, if, if you took my views and most progressives' views, they'd still line up on A lot of percent of yeah. stuff, right? And yet... I'm cast as sort of the devil because I'm a pro-business, pro-charter Well, I think school. that's what separates
1: you. Like, the right? business stuff is, I think a lot of progressives don't think about dollars and cents. But wouldn't, if,
0: wouldn't they be better off working with me or with Gottheimer or whoever it is on the stuff that we do support together, try to pass it, as opposed to just demonizing us and then having us come after you constantly? Well,
1: I think a good example that you know all too well is Uber, right, yeah. and the taxi commission. I don't think there was enough work being done for my progressive friends, including a lot of people I helped elect— really looking into what the world was like before uber and lyft yeah like if you're in a black neighborhood can you get a taxi nope uh if you want to get a taxi license is that a fair process hell no like are we saddling people with enormous debt to get these taxi licenses that make no sense is the interface of uber and lyft a way better experience no matter who you are of course it is so like you start to answer all these questions and there just wasn't enough exploration about like hey like. Who's benefiting from a world where the so, taxi so industry when, when continues de, to when dominate? when de
0: Blasio tried to basically ban Uber in 2015, the, the groups that we used, that, that we brought out to beat it, were immigrants... And African people of color, because right. the people of color all Couldn't had experiences not get a, taxi. Not a yeah. taxi, and immigrants are people who drive the fucking Ubers. And and by the way, they're free to drive yellow taxis, but the ones who choose to do so, at least at that, that right. moment, said this is the better option for me. I want to be able to have this option if this is what I choose to do. Right. And we tacked them from the left using those those communities, but it was funny. Right? White progressives just didn't see it at all.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's. It's weird. They 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 just, and they also have a fixation with labor. That I think is also like so they look at uh, not that the taxi industry was great on labor issues and we don't have to go into that but that like they're so fixated on is this whether it's a charter school or is it Uber etc are they unionized and they're not asking well what are the people working. Asking for and what are the customers asking for? The Uber is a great example. The polling was a little muddy, but when I was looking at the polling, you probably know it better than I do. A lot of the drivers didn't want to be classified as no. full time workers. No, mo- most don't. So when I, I've because the issues receded a little bit, I stopped doing
0: it. But you know, we worked on that issue for years, both for Uber, but on lots of different portfolio companies and, and tech companies, um, and especially with Uber drivers, I would say eighty percent wanted to be independent contractors. Yeah. And they understood, first, like, well, maybe they're maybe you know they not sophisticated. They don't understand the issues here. And I'd explain them, and they'd be like, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. This is what I want, right? I have a autistic kid at home, and I need to be able to drive these hours, but not these hours. I need total flexibility to do that, or right. whatever it was. But, yeah, it's funny. There's this cognitive dissonance again. I mean, this is what drives me crazy about progressives, especially white progressives, is the cognizant between what they think is supposed to be the right position right. and what actually are good policies for people that they purport to care about.
1: Well, there's also double standards, right? Like, you look at qualified immunity for police officers. Every progressive was calling for an end qualified immunity. They did no work interrogating, well, why do we have qualified immunity? Well, it's because of Democrats. Like, they, they look after every municipal worker. And a good example is, like, and they, they won't look at it for teachers and less kids. Forget about the immunity that that person gets or the right. district, right? Like... Uh, and why, like it's like it's harder to fire a principal than to convict somebody oh, or yeah. a school than to convict somebody in a criminal trial. But there's my favorite anecdote about this is uh, the Jeffrey Dahmer case. There was this like he there's this Netflix show that everybody's now seen is super creepy. There's this scene where he chases one of his victims out onto the streets, a young person, and his neighbors see this and bring a cop over and are like, "This guy's in trouble." And Dahmer basically sweet talks this cop. Into letting this kid go back in. A massive incompetence involved and very rude. The cop is very rude to the residents who were like, no, something's going on here. That guy wound up getting fired. Now he got reinstated because of the union and then became the head of the union in the city. Figures. Because yeah. he was like an example of the worst, the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And when I talk to my progressive friends, I'm like, that's what the teachers' union presidents are. They're not the best teacher. They're the person who can take the worst-case example and be like, I'm going to protect you no matter what. So Peter Ward,
0: so P- Peter
1: ran the hotel trades here, and I would argue he's sort of the, the been
0: the smartest labor leader in, in New York City so, for the think I know Peter 20, yet. 30 years. And he always would talk about these privately. Maybe I'm revealing this, but he's he's retired. Or not retired, he's no longer in the union. Um, how, you know, if the UFT didn't spend all of their time advocating for the bottom 5%, if you just yeah. sit and say, you know what? Fuck them, you're right. No, they shouldn't be there. They'd get everything else they wanted, and they'd have no opposition. For sure. That's all this is about. It's just getting the really, really bad, and the PBA, same thing, about a percent of five cops, or whatever it is, all these unions, especially kind of public sector unions, that are so focused on protecting kind of the worst, and I understand why they tend to be the more active in union
1: elections or whatever else. But wait, Brad,
0: do explain that, because I'm curious, like, like... Has no union ever like decided that
1: you will so, lose your you'll lose your next election? Yeah, you'll but lose. because yeah.
0: because the five percent have that much support because they are the loudest. You know, it's it's no different than actual elections where you know primary turnout's 12 percent, and those are the most ideological people on either side of the. So Ohio. the high performers don't even know they're in a union. The high performers yeah, <laughs> totally yeah. totally blind to it, and then the people who show up at the meetings and yell and scream. Are the low performers by the way sometimes because they're spent all day in the rubber room being paid to do nothing so they have plenty of fucking time to engage in right in union (laughs) activities there's
1: another there's a couple other things going on one is the culture of the industry right the NYPD is notorious for this like there is a code that goes on where you just don't sell out anybody even if they fuck up like and I saw this firsthand my grandfather went to prison for a corruption scandal so I was steeped in this as a kid. Like the idea that you would rat out your friend, and he decided not to rat out any of his people. And it's funny, like he wound up getting rewarded because it was a mafia-related thing. He wound up getting rewarded with managing Vincent's Italian restaurant because it was like all kind of like shady and mafia thing. So he was like, I'm not going to rat. That's how powerful it is. He was like, I'm not going to rat out anybody. And he wound I'll, I'll up taking it. will do going to benefit me in the long That's term. How powerful The ROI was high. Yeah. yeah. In a way, I respect it. But at the same time, I'm I'm not going to like tolerated especially if I'm somebody who's a victim of any of your crimes or a person who wants to send a kid to your school and has been my kid has one chance at fourth grade I could respect your omerta and at the same right. time be like F that there's also this problem where the oldest teachers and the retired teachers have way more power than the young teachers young teachers yeah. from what I can tell and one of the reasons why the charter sector is really good at recruiting them is they don't get paid as much as they should they, they don't get enough incentives and they don't have as much power within the union and so there's huge cultural differences that play out in the unions and in certain cases this happened on racial politics recently where young teachers of color started to fight back against the older you know less uh, diverse ranks uh, that were controlled in unions
0: yeah for sure there was that group educators for excellence that was meant to be yeah, like whatever a I didn't just think they didn't. yeah whatever happened yeah it
1: just kind of went away yeah. all
0: right so this was a great segue to my last question which has nothing to do with politics at all but stats Staten island question. oh yeah so i have been obsessively watching the wu-tang saga on hulu oh i, I haven't seen it it's Fucking amazing. Is Brad, it good? Bradley, I want you know yeah. I did watch it on your recommendation. What do you think? I was amazed how good it was. I only watched the first two episodes, but it has actual drama in it. Like I was shocked because like when you have those kind of approved band things, they never really cut to the real story because yeah. they got well, to so protect the, everybody's the, legacy R- RZA and all that. Shit. Wrote it and and i think kind of put it together and i think he's really such a true artist yeah that he stuck to his artistry ahead of i need to re- else. i need to watch this they it's do a bad f- job with the violence and stuff though like, think it's too cartoonish yeah it's just stupid like like so a guy you get, shooting into an apartment from the street like yeah I once, so once you get, no you would ever do that. season 1 is it's season i'm about halfway through season 2 okay. right now and that goes from them basically realizing i guess the point is all of these guys are starting off in gangs, drugs, violence, prison, all that stuff. And then they eventually, oh, I have this talent. Yeah. I'm much better off pursuing this thing. And Riz was this sort of great visionary that was able to sort of bring them all together. So now in season two, you see how they become a successful group and sort of how that all Oh, comes I need together. to check
1: that out. I've read his book. I think it's called The Tao of Wu or The Tao of Wu. I just think Staten Island right now is undergoing a cultural renaissance with Pete Davidson, Con Jost. Like... You know, this Wu-Tang show. Like, I think that it's such a fascinating place because there's nowhere else like it on the planet. You know, Ron DeSantis just recently went there and said it's Florida of the North or whatever. Bill Clinton used to say it was Arkansas on the Hudson. It is its own weird place. And I grew up in this corner of Staten Island and my family's from called Travis. That is literally on top of the old Fresh Kills landfill. So we literally—it was like, it was almost like the Alps around us were, we're garbage. We're now. Trash. So even to this day, when I walk down neighborhoods like this and I smell the trash, being out. Reminds you of home, out, sweet home. It reminds me of home. Yeah. 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 So, that's that's what I grew up with, and that's probably why I'll die of cancer in ten years. W- were you
0: uh, when you lived there? Were you pro or anti secession?
1: I I was of two minds. I understood the impetus behind it, but I I'm a proud New York City person. I, I don't know why anybody would willingly disassociate with the greatest city well, on earth. And the thing that I don't get,
0: its and I've like written uh, you know, columns in advance saying you want to go, go. But other than cops, New York City employees have to live in New York City. Yeah. Staten Island has a massive number of city employees who it's live there. It's basically every neighbor. And had, basically yeah. you're saying to them, okay, you're
1: all fired right. or you all got to move to one of the other four boroughs. I actually wrote a, a treatment for a show I never did anything with about uh, the secessionist movement becoming what did I call it? I can't remember what I called it. I should dust this off. But it was all about like what would happen if they cracked down post-2020, they cracked down on um, like the police in ways like we're talking about labor, in a real way fired a bunch of police, and then they became like a radicalized terrorist organization based in Staten Island. And it, and it unites with almost a secessionist political movement, almost like a Sinn in an IRA. And I basically it was like, what would happen if this like force like existed within the city and the city had to deal with like a combination of political and violent criminal organization and that's basically was the premise behind the show I should dust that up. yeah off. you should that would that, that. be fun
0: yeah cool alright man hey uh, how do people follow Lost Debate the arena all the other shit that? You yeah
1: uh, we didn't even talk about arena but yeah. if you're listening to this podcast you probably shouldn't <laughs> you probably shouldn't look at the arena but the arena is this political organization I did there's probably more left than most of our listeners. But the the Lost Debate, you can find us, we have our flagship show. You could follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a whole bunch of offerings. If you go to lostdebate.com, you could look at a bunch of different podcasts that we have. And if you have ideas and, and you want to get involved in anything, we do. We're a nonprofit, so we're always looking for good ideas, good partners. And, you know... Um, I'm just really grateful that you invited me here I always uh, love to come one neighborhood over and, to well right and,
0: and you live in the neighborhood so yeah. you know it's I pop in at, this bookstore right, all the time I actually yeah. come, come to the to, to come to the sure, yeah all the time sure no problem anytime <laughs> you want
1: me back I'll, I'll rant about unions on a moment's notice there we go yeah. alright rather Gupta, thanks for joining us thank you sir